Welcome to Econa Day Unplugged. It is Tuesday, March 13th, 2018. I am Ann Picker, Econa Day's Chief Economist, and with me today are Jeremy Hawkins in London and Mark Pender in the U.S. Jeremy, once again, you have a full plate. ECB policy, Eurozone slowing domestic demand, the UK's spring statement from the government, and we do have a central bank this week, Swiss National Bank. Indeed, quite a lot going on over here at the moment. Um, I guess we should kick off with last week's CCB meeting, which pretty well produced the expected change. Um, by that, there's certainly nothing to do with um, quantitative easing or interest rates, so they remain fixed for the time being at least. But what we did see was the bank uh, effectively switching from an easing bias to a neutral policy. So I think as we talked about last week, they decided to come down on the side of removing the sentence from the official statement which suggested that the council was ready to increase the asset purchase program uh, should financial or economic conditions so dictate. What does that mean? Well, ultimately, it's, it's a pretty subtle move. And really, all it says is uh, just that policy is as likely to be tightened now as it is to be eased. So it doesn't really say very much at all about what's going to happen in terms of a near-term outlook. Nonetheless, uh, investors, of course, are going to see it as at least the first small step on the path to ending the asset purchase program altogether. And that, of course, is a, a necessary condition for any future increase in interest rates. So it's a, it's a step in the right direction, nothing more than that. But um, I think we've got to say, as things currently stand anyway, best bet remains that quantitative easing will remain at the current rate of 30 billion a month, uh, 30 billion euros a month, that is, through September at least. And I suspect it will end in September. And probably no change in interest rates until, I guess, early 2019 at the earliest. Now, one reason for um, adopting that kind of line is uh, what you, you mentioned in the introduction. And that's, is, although everyone's talking up European growth at the moment, I think you know, there's a few words of caution that are worthwhile mentioning. And that's particularly, particularly with regards to you know, where this growth is actually coming from. So last week, we had the first look at the fourth quarter GDP expenditure components. Now, growth was 0.6% on a quarter-on-quarter -quarter basis, and that was 2.7% year-on-year. Nothing new in that. That fitted in with the preliminary data. But the, the breakdown, they, they, a little bit worrying, it's got to be said. I mean, contribution coming out of household consumption, you know, ultimately the dominant force behind pretty well any economy, uh, that was just 0.1 percentage points of a 0.6 percentage point increase in real GDP. Exports, on the other hand, were worth fully 0.9 percentage points. Now, I don't want to start throwing around too many numbers, but if we look at annual growth, so of the 2.7% we saw um, in terms of real GDP, exports, worth, um, exports were worth all of that. So essentially what we're saying at the moment is that you know, most of the growth coming out of a eurozone, but as far as the back end of last year is concerned anyway, was really courtesy of the pickup we're seeing coming through in the global economy rather than what we're seeing in terms of domestic demand. And of course, if the ECB is going to meet its inflation objectives, it really needs to see an acceleration in underlying demand. And if we're going to need that, we really need to see faster growth of domestic spending and, and ultimately higher wages. So I think it's something which is just a bare reminder of a time when everyone's getting increasingly optimistic about the way the European economy is performing. Yes, some the headline data are looking pretty good and have for a while now, but how we get to that headline data, well, that's not necessarily the best route. 
Um, quickly sticking with central banks in terms of a look ahead, we'll have the Swiss National Bank holding its quarterly monetary policy assessment, as it calls it, on Thursday. No change there expecting its target for three months Swiss LIBOR. So that currently stands at minus 1.25% to 0.25%. And the key deposit rate, that's soon expected to remain pegged at minus 075 yeah, I can say it, minus 0.75%, and that's where it's been since January 2015. The economy's sort of picked up a little bit of steam, but you know, again, in the same way that some of the composition of demand in Eurozone isn't what it could be, much the same applies to Switzerland. So although we have seen a, a gradual pickup in inflation um, in Switzerland over the course of the last couple of years or so, it hasn't breached the 1% mark yet. And the Swiss National Bank really sort of semi-targets it at just short of 2%. And the underlying rate's only 0.5%. And crucially in all of this has been the weakness of the Swiss franc, which really started, what, the middle of last year. If we look at the various contributions, then we see the domestic, the domestic component of the CPI inflation rate, the annual inflation rate, is only running at 03 import price inflation is running at 1.8. So it just underlines how important the depreciation of a Swiss franc has been to the uh, the pickup in inflation. And it classically is a reason why I think you know, the Swiss National Bank won't rock, want to rock the boat. Although we've got you know steps towards reduction in quantitative easing at the ECB and Fed tightening going on, the SMB, I'll be very surprised if it doesn't stand to, doesn't continue to stand completely steady. And again, just reiterate to the market, it doesn't want to see if a Swiss franc you know, reverse the losses it's made over the last half year or so. As far as the UK is concerned, I must say the, uh, the new spring statement was pleasantly short and about half the amount of time we normally get for the full budget. That's part of the Chancellor's new policy of really holding just one main fiscal statement during the course of the year. So the full budget will be in the, what, October or probably November later on this year. And that really just un- underlined the fact that borrowing outlook in the UK has improved. That's the good news. The bad news is that most of the improvement appears to come from cyclical factors and structural borrowing remains pretty well much as high as ever. And and the growth forecast, nothing to write home about either. Markets weren't particularly impressed. And to be honest, that's not particularly a surprise in itself in as much as with so much Brexit certainty around at the moment. Any forecast, well, is it worth its salt? Probably not. Thank you, Jeremy. Mark, we got the latest CPI data this morning. Everybody was waiting for it. And it was benign with no surprises as far as I can see. Well, I think that's uh, pretty uh, uh, dead on. Uh, The prior month, however, we did see some uh, pressure in basics, but that seems to all uh, have at least eased. And the average hourly earnings uh, data that we got last week uh, really did set the tone for February inflation, the CPI being the second major release here. And this uh, will foresee the PCE core, which is uh, which tracks very closely with the CPI, which uh, the Fed uses. So uh, the market's reaction, I think, to the average hourly earnings, uh, that is a big rally in the stock market, uh, held true, I think, for this month. However, given full employment um, and uh, the risk, even though we haven't really seen it, uh, in a consistent way of, uh, of accelerating wages, 
uh, really will, you know, it, it can turn. And the, we, we can see how uh, sensitive the markets are now to inflation numbers themselves, which is very interesting. And uh, we don't know if, we, if any of these things are going to pop up or not. We have producer prices tomorrow. That'll be March 14th, Wednesday. And we'll follow that with import and export prices on Thursday. These series have been showing uh, uh, gains, uh, price gains, uh, acceleration, and so have the anecdotal reports like Philly Fed and Empire State, where um, respondents are increasingly expecting selling prices to show traction um, through the year. Uh, so the inflation picture here, and we'll get a big uh, uh, you know, scene on this next week with Jerome Powell's first press conference. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see the FOMC uh, quarterly forecast, which will also be posted. Uh, and uh, there the crux will be whether or not we're going to have the three rate hikes this year or the fourth or a fourth rate hike. And that in turns that will turn almost entirely, if not completely, on inflation, but Jeremy, I have a, you know I have a question. I, um, you were saying, and, and it was, uh, that um, the uh, EU GDP, uh, the components aren't uh, really as favorable as uh, as one would like. However, if this was the U.S. and we saw what was the last time that net exports had any meaningful uh, positive. Uh, uh, thing for our GDP is a complete and total contrast to the European uh, GDP, and, and we would be so uh, uh, welcome. Would be so welcome to see uh, the economy growing on nothing else but exports. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I can, I can fully understand that. So I think, you know, over your side, the worry, presumably, if you've got the Fed tightening, is that at some point inflation is going to overshoot their targets. Over here, and yet it's still very much the case that the opposite is true. We need to see some inflation being generated. So uh, we need to see stronger growth of domestic demand. If GDP out of the Eurozone is essentially being generated by what's happening overseas, that's not going to really provide any particular boost as far as Eurozone inflation is concerned. <laughs> Unless, of course, we see the euro weaken significantly, and that translates into you know, stronger imported inflation. But as we speak, we're talking about a relatively strong euro, at least in the context of where we stand now compared to where we were a year ago. So it's having completely the opposite effect. But say, just, 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 just quickly to reiterate those things, uh -huh. we're so talking about you know, annual growth of eurozone GDP in the fourth quarter of last year was 2.7%. The contribution of solely exports to the 2.7% uh -huh. was 28 Now, That's obviously, it imports to get next, but it's, yeah, it does <laughs> underline the importance of overseas it, demand. And it does. And really, what's wrong with an economy where the currency is strong and, and exports are strong? Well, if you can get both, I mean, you've got to say you're really doing pretty well. I mean, from that side of it, you can say it suggests that um, Eurozone exports at current Euro levels are still very competitive. So you don't uh -huh. have to worry about the external economy per se. And indeed, uh -huh. you know, the Eurozone's got a very comfortable current account surplus. But something's got, it's got to get domestic demand going. I guess, but it, uh, if you have the foreign demand making up for it, that that is, you know, a good compensation. It kind of raises the question: which economy right now in the world is the strongest? I mean, just based on that assessment, it looks like Europe uh, has to be considered. 
Well, Europe is only benefiting from the strength of the global economy, but let's assume for whatever reason a global economy starts slowing, then with Europe not really generating any decent domestic demand, it's going to be hit disproportionately. So it really does it. You know, it leaves Europe that much more vulnerable or exposed to any kind of deceleration in uh, you know, global economic activity. Also, disproportionate growth does create some inconsistencies going forward and it makes it more difficult to balance out growth throughout the economy. I think that's very true, and particularly on if, if we just look at the Eurozone as a whole, when we're talking about imbalances, one of the biggest imbalances there is you know, the huge surplus, current account and trade surpluses that Germany continues to generate. And that is much of a chagrin of the other Eurozone members who you know, would really like to see Germany spend more domestically, which would help to suck in imports from other Eurozone countries. Um, but one of the problems, and this goes back to you know, what we're talking about in terms of general domestic demand, if you look at growth of German household consumption, it hasn't actually been positive since the middle of last year. So I think over the second half of last of 2017, one quarter it was up, uh, it was I think negative, and the other quarter it was flat. And that's you know one of the real problems confronting eurozone policymakers at the moment. And what's you the know, heart Ger of that? And what's the heart of that problem? Is it lack of wage growth? Is it just uh, uh, consumer uh, malaise? Well, it's it's I'm a good question. I think that the honest answer is no one's too sure at the moment. It's got to be said that Germans Germans have always tended to have you know a, a predilection towards towards saving they're naturally cautious mm -hmm. um what we're seeing at the moment though is that although we've got strengthening wage growth it's a bit like your side of the pond it isn't as robust as it should be given the overall broad growth figures coming out of Germany. But we've got record numbers in terms of consumer confidence. Uh, we've got record lows on unemployment. So if you use the kind of old traditional models, you know, they'd be suggesting, well, German consumption should be flying by now. But it ain't. And it's again, it's this sort of breakdown of some of the old traditional economic relationships, which uh, you're making really understanding what's going on, let alone trying to forecast what's going to happen, all the more complicated. Thanks, Jeremy. And on, on that note, I think we'll finish today. Until next week.